Luke chapter 16. We've been in the book of Luke for, man, I guess it's been about 15 months now. Um, If you're new to our church, we jumped in around Advent of 2020, the year that the world went dark. We decided to end that year on a, a sweet note, diving into Luke's gospel account with the story of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, very uh, Christmas-esque, and we just continued on with the book of Luke, and we, we haven't, other than a couple of rest stops along the way, stopped on this journey, and we now find ourselves in chapter 16, which means that we are roughly two-thirds of the way done, or will be, around the time that we finish up this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track up on the screen behind me. This morning's passage will be up there. Any other verses outside of Luke's gospel account Um, Let me go ahead and pray for us before we dive in. Heavenly Father, I have no idea what each and every person, each and every family brings into this space this morning. I know what I bring into this space, and I know that I'm personally desperate for a feeling sense of the very things that I preach And I trust that we're all desperate for a feeling sense of the very things that we're about to sit with as we have the scriptures in hand before us. God, you promise that your word does not return void. And that includes this passage, a passage that's confusing to many. A lot of red letter words that are incredibly heavy that get into lordship and kingship and what it means for you to be lord and king as we march down the Calvary road as your disciples having cast aside our nets that we might follow you. It's such a foreign concept to many of us who have bought into the notion that Jesus could be our Savior and not be our Lord. And so I pray this morning with a view of the cross and empty tomb in mind as a reminder of where our identity is truly and most deeply rooted and found, that, Lord, you would stir our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit as a work of your grace, that we might leave this place this morning more deeply committed than we came in to following you, whatever that means. And it surely means something different for each and every one of us. There is no one sermon application that could cover us all. If it were, it would be so broad that it would lack any concreteness to it. And so I pray, Spirit of God, even there, that you would give us clarity, that you would confirm by way of your people what it, what it is that you're calling us to as it pertains to a deeper commitment to marching down that Calvary road, knowing that the pattern that you've set for us, Jesus, is one of crucifixion on the other side of which awaits resurrection and glory. So I pray that you would awaken our minds, that you would awaken our hearts this morning. Let this not be an exercise in futility. Spirit of God, move in power as we sit with the great authority of your word. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. So this morning's passage brings us to yet another parable, one of the the many that we encounter throughout the book of Luke. There have been churches that have done sermon series just on the parables in Luke's gospel account because there's so many of them. As a reminder, a parable is a story with a deeper meaning, a story that communicates a deeper reality or, or a hidden truth, both revealing and concealing at the same time, melting the hearts of those with ears to hear 
like the sinners and tax collectors in Luke's gospel account, while hardening the hearts of others in divine judgment. Those kind of standing on the peripheral edges of everything that Jesus is saying. As we jump into this morning's parable, we need to be aware of, of two things, maybe more than two, but I'll give you two, which will help us to determine how to understand what Jesus is saying here, what he's teaching. For one, a parable is meant to teach one lesson, not a hundred, like a children's story. The moral of the story is, the more we try to, to press the details of a, a parable down to each and every um, minute point being made, the more trouble we tend to get ourselves into. We're not looking for the hundred morals of the story. In other words, we're looking for the moral of the story. Second, it's crucial to remember who Jesus's audience is here, which was revealed to us back in Luke chapter 15, verses one and two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. As you pick up the story in Luke chapter 16, we find Jesus standing amidst a crowd of younger brothers going back to the parable of the lost son last week, tax collectors and sinners. And we find Jesus standing amidst a crowd of older brothers, scribes and Pharisees. It's the tax collectors and sinners having drawn near to hear him, chapter 15, verse one, right after having heard Jesus say at the end of chapter 14, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's the sinners and tax collectors who have drawn near to hear Jesus while the scribes and Pharisees stand at a distance, just like the older brother at the end of that parable of the prodigal, convinced of their own self-righteousness, angry at Jesus for offering the kingdom to all the wrong people, suspicious of joy on the outside looking in. As we pick up this morning's passage, Jesus is speaking to the disciples so that there must be something meant for them in this parable. But the parable also, according to verse 14, we'll get there soon enough, is very much for the religious leaders as well who are standing within earshot as Jesus continues to teach. If you pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 16, Luke tells us, And he, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Jesus here describes a, a wealthy man having entrusted his possessions and the management of his financial affairs to another. And the wealthy man receives word that this employee is squandering his possessions. So he calls him into the office, says, I've got to let you go. But he doesn't fire him on the spot. Notice he rather tells him to turn in an official account of his management as his last assignment on the payroll. And the manager, verse 3, said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Since I'm losing my job, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. This is a suit and tie kind of guy. Now faced with some real questions, right? Too proud to beg, too weak for manual labor. How am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to keep a roof over our heads? There's a day of reckoning coming, the last day on the payroll. He sees that day of reckoning, and in light of that day, he comes up with a crafty plan. Verse 4. 
I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down and write 50. While he still has the financial books in hand, he decides to make his way down the list of his master's debtors two of which Jesus explicitly includes in this parable. The first, a man owing 100 measures of oil, roughly 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of oil, right? Based on what Branch and Vine sells their olive oil for, that debt today would be about 144 grand. I mean, we're talking several years' salary, even in Jesus' day. And we're told that this soon-to-be unemployed manager said to the debtor, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. How about we cut that $144,000 debt in half? Let's make it 72 grand. Then he said to another, verse seven, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Again, a, a significant debt, several years' salary we're talking about here. A debt that the manager in this case cuts by 20%, a significant dent in the remaining balance, just the same as the first guy. Let's put ourselves in the story for, for just a moment. All right, on the conservative end, and don't say this out loud, that'd be awkward for all of us, more awkward than having to stand up and go check on your vehicle in the middle of a church service. But on the conservative end, multiply your household income by three. And imagine that you owe that kind of money to a lender. Now imagine someone coming along who was able to cut your debt by as much as 50% right there in the moment. What would your disposition toward that person be? If that person asked to borrow your lawn equipment a few months later, let's say, would you hesitate? If that person called you up and asked you to watch their kids, would you give that a second thought? You see what this guy's doing? I'm cutting your debt significantly, helping to pave the way to your financial freedom. If I come knocking on your door asking for help in time of need, don't forget this act of kindness. Soon to be unemployed, without an income, wondering how he's going to put a roof over his family's head, how he's going to put food on the table. And in a moment of forward-thinking resourcefulness, he prepares for the day of reckoning to come. Verse eight, this might seem a little strange in its language. The master, Jesus tells us, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now here's how we have, where we have to be careful not to, to press the parable too much. This is not the language of great job swindling me. Do it again tomorrow. And the moral of the story is cheat others for selfish gain. That's what Jesus is saying. No, this is, this is the language of I'm incredibly impressed with your resourcefulness. I'm not happy about it, but I am impressed. On our wedding day, my wife's going to love that I'm telling this story. <laughs> On our wedding day, and this tells you something about the, the circles that I ran in, the guy friends that I continue to this day to have. We've matured a little bit since then. But uh, we were coming out of the reception hall 
And I already knew to begin with that I was gonna get a suit full and pants full of grits before I ever made it to the car because that was kind of tradition. That happened to every guy in our circle of friends and I was one of the last to go. Um, but what I did not expect was when, when we got to the actual car, the, the getaway vehicle, so to speak, and I opened that car, I realized that while we were dancing on that dance floor, that all of my buddies had decided to open up the sunroof of the car and fill the entirety of the car with packing peanuts. <laughs> Open the door, sea of peanuts comes out on, on my wife and I both. It took, and she could tell the story better than I could, it took several hours to clean up that mess. Um, we, we didn't get to where we were trying to go for at least three hours beyond what our, our actual time frame was. And I remember thinking at the time, and, and I would say she probably had a different reaction, but my reaction was, well done, gentlemen. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not happy about it, but I'm impressed. That, that's the language here. The master in the parable is not saying that what the manager did was right, nor is Jesus saying that. He refers to the manager as dishonest, Right? Rather, he's commending the man for having the, the resourcefulness to think ahead in light of the day of reckoning to come. In the words of one scholar, there is a legitimate moral difference between saying, I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly and saying, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. Jesus describes the master's reaction as one of commendation regarding the manager's resourcefulness, which he follows with words Jesus does that have troubled so many Christians along the way. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What? Right, Jesus here declares that the sons of this world, the ungodly, the unrighteous, unbelievers, they're oftentimes more shrewd than the sons of light, the godly, the righteous, believers. That, that most people, including many in the church, live as though there's not coming a day when we will stand before God and give an account of what we did with that which he entrusted us. We, we might take that Jesus as Savior piece of it and go, yes and amen. When I think forward to the day of judgment, I need a rescuer to forgive me of my sins. And so absolutely in the present, I trust in Christ to rescue me from my sins because of the future day that's coming. But as it pertains to lordship, that's a whole different story. This idea that we would look to a day of reckoning like the manager in the parable and say, I'm gonna live under Jesus's lordship in light of that day and trust in him, not just as my savior, but as my king. Jesus is saying, live like there's coming a day when you, what you really value will be revealed in the presence of God. In the words of one commentator, we should be as innovative and shrewd for the kingdom as our secular counterparts are in the marketplace. He goes on in verse nine. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Again, another incredibly bothersome verse to many 
Which begs the question, what is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, let's let's unpack this idea of unrighteous wealth. This unrighteous wealth that Jesus speaks of, he says it's going to fail. That there's a wealth that can be obtained and it will ultimately fail. What's Jesus talking about? Answer, it's not a trick question. Money and possessions. They fail us in life by always leaving us wanting, whether we have abundance or need, and they fail us in death as we can't take them with us. Jesus goes so far as to call these things unrighteous wealth. Why unrighteous? I mean, Jesus doesn't have a a theology that would communicate that money in and of itself is, is evil. After all, money can be used to do great things to the glory of God. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Think of it this way. According to the the U.S. Federal Reserve, the average $1 bill has an estimated lifespan of a little less than six years. Based on that statistic, if you pulled a dollar bill out of your pocket right now and, and looked at it, where do you think that dollar bill has been? How do you think it's been spent over the course of six years of existence? You start thinking in those terms. It starts to make that that little piece of paper feel a little dirty, doesn't it? A little unrighteous. Particularly when you think about the way that we, even those who are are kingdom-minded, oftentimes leverage money and possessions for the sake of our, our own surface and root idols. We participate in it, right? We all know that it's the human heart that's truly dirty, that spends and hoards money in ways that don't honor God, but it's not a far stretch for Jesus to refer to money as unrighteous wealth, the stuff that that most of us use to afford us our idols, the stuff that will ultimately fail us in the end, Jesus says. Notice that he doesn't say, run from the stuff, get as far away from it as you possibly can. No, he says, use it to make friends for yourselves who will one day receive you into the eternal dwellings. In other words, steward it among any other resources that you may have in light of the day to come. That future day to come. The the dishonest manager, he understood that there was a future day to prepare for for which to steward the present tense resources that he had at his disposal. And Jesus says, live like that guy. Be innovative. Be shrewd for the kingdom, for the glory of Christ. Steward the present tense resources at your disposal, knowing there's coming a day when what you really value will be revealed in the presence of God and all of your investments will find their surest and final return. And he goes on and says, and this might be the most sobering part of the entirety of this morning's passage. Verse 10, he says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here Jesus declares that, and this is hard for us to get our our minds around, maybe confessionally, but functionally a far different struggle. Jesus declares here that you and I don't ultimately own anything. The very parable itself driving at the principle of stewardship. Be faithful, verse 12, in that which is another's. 
that our unrighteous wealth is not our own. Our money and possessions have been entrusted to us by God to steward for his glory and his glory alone. And not just 10%. We're to steward that with which he's entrusted us before the tithe and after the tithe. The question is, how are we stewarding the unrighteous wealth with which God has entrusted us for his glory? It's not a question for tomorrow. It's a question for right now, for today. Jesus says as much. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Here's the sobering part. Many in the church think that when I get my hands on just a little bit more, then I'll steward it differently. And Jesus says, no, you won't. He presents the listener with a sobering question. What are you doing right now with what you have? The answer to that question will not only impact what God entrusts to us in this life, but in the age to come. The true riches, verse 11. He goes on. It says in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We looked at these words when we walked through the Sermon on the Mount series a few years back. You may recall, notice that, notice that Jesus doesn't say that we should not serve two masters but rather that we cannot serve two masters. It's not possible. There's a throne in the castle of our hearts and there's only room for one on that throne. If we love money and are devoted to money and God seeks to dethrone money in our lives, we'll hate and despise God. And if we love God and are devoted to God and money seeks to dethrone God in our lives, we'll hate and despise money. The throne cannot seat two. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. You don't even have to get into the last nine, right? You shall have no other gods before me. That language of having other gods, it's the language of holding or trusting in. It's more than intellectual belief. It's a heart trust, a worship issue, a kingdom allegiance issue. As Martin Luther once famously said, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. No matter what our confession is. Luke will go on to give specific examples of both sides of the coin through the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is the very next passage we'll sit with in this book of the Bible, and the story of Zacchaeus, chapter 19. One tells the story of a man ruled by money and it ends tragically. The other tells the story of a man who in the end is ruled by Jesus and it ends beautifully. This morning, Jesus presents us with the question, which of these tells the story of your life, of my life? It goes on in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Pharisees, 
the religious church-going folk respond by ridiculing Jesus for his parable and teaching about kingdom, allegiance, and stewardship. Why? I mean, didn't the Pharisees tithe? According to the gospel accounts, the answer is yes. I mean, this is a good opportunity for a self-righteous person or crowd to respond with, you tell them, Jesus, these people over here, they never tithe. Why are the tithers in the crowd ridiculing Jesus? And the answer is because he's going beyond the surface level behavior and exposing their inner darkness, their disloyalty at a heart level to God and his kingdom. They proclaim to love God with money all the while seated on the throne of their hearts. Law-abiding Pharisees, guilty, mind you, of breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That tragically what should have been a response of self-abandoning repentance was one of self-righteous ridicule. As is far too often the case when man's idols are threatened. This is not the first time we've encountered this teaching in, in Luke's gospel account. Something of a prominent theme throughout this book of the Bible. If you go back to chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, there Jesus said, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that, that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That we live in a world in which worldly possessions fall apart, moths destroy. We live in a world in which blindsiding circumstances change everything in an instant. Thieves steal. Not so, Jesus says, with the true riches of heaven, a treasure that does not fail. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But ask the question, where, where are our hearts this morning? Because we, we can kind of do the confessional thing and we can check all the, the boxes. And yet, deep down at our core, our hearts can be caught up in, in things that Jesus Christ himself would, would press on. And, and I don't mean in, in, in this sense of, of, of being among his disciples on the Calvary Road calling us to, to yet the next step of faith and repentance. But I mean thinking we're on the inside when we're on the outside all the while. There's something better. As we talk about the heart, that our hearts can rest in God's wisdom knowing that he's trustworthy in every circumstance. That our hearts can rest in God's goodness, trusting that he never ceases to want what's best for us. That our hearts can rest in God's sovereignty, believing that he's always and forever in control. The question is, will we interpret the character, attributes, nature, and being of God through the lens of our circumstances, or will we get it the other way around? The greatest display of all of those attributes, God's wisdom, his goodness, his sovereignty, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, on greatest display in the sending of his son, that regardless of our circumstances, we can look to the cross and empty tomb and we can know what God's like. We're told as such, 
Very famous verse. See it often around here. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That I've said this before. Jesus didn't give a tenth of himself. He gave all of himself. Setting aside the privilege of divine glory, taking on the form of a peasant in an act of sacrificial love, that he might live a perfect life of kingdom-minded stewardship and allegiance in your place, in my place, only then to bear the sins of our adulterous hearts in his body on the tree. Isn't the gospel good news? That if you're, if you're not a Christian, I, I would implore you, I would urge you not to forsake the greatest treasure of all, the great treasure of God himself and the riches of his glorious eternal kingdom. Coming back to those sobering words of Jesus in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel account, and he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, his very soul? 